liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe This is Clint Russell. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Today I had on Nate Hockman, who is a young, up-and-coming writer for National Review. Brilliant guy. Uh, gave me a lot of hope with the conservative movement and what we've been seeing as of late. I think that the red pills are flowing amongst the young conservatives, and he was embedded with the, uh, and I'm using embedded very intentionally because it ended up being kind of a war zone in Ottawa for the past seven days. And he wrote an incredible piece that I will link below. Um, I just think that it was a, just a great opportunity to have a conversation with a conservative who got to feel the the butt end of the gun, so to speak, when it comes to state power and protesting. And uh, we talk about that a little bit. We talk about the freezing of assets, which is what he wrote about. And I think that you'll come away uh, both more concerned and more more hopeful, if that's a possibility. Uh, tonight's episode is brought to you by Privacy Post. And after what we've seen in Canada over the past week, I think you need to consider services like this. PrivacyPost.io is a privacy by default virtual mail and business center designed for the location independent expat or international entrepreneur seeking financial freedom. Services include virtual mail, a professional business address, privacy trust services, company formation, Portugal D7 residency, and virtual domicile in the privacy respecting and income tax-free state of South Dakota. PrivacyPost.io protects you from third parties, overreaching government agencies, and complicit cloud platforms invading your private, personal, and business information. That sounds important to me. What about you? Privacy is freedom of association, expression, commerce, and mobility. PrivacyPost.io is your partner in freedom. Go to www.privacypost.io for more information. Don't wait. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. Today, I have on Nate Hockman, who is a writer for National Review. Uh, go ahead and tell people about any of your other honorifics. Well, yeah, my main job is as a writer for National Review, and I'm also a Robert Novak Journalism Fellow at the Fund for American Studies, which is basically just another fancy way of saying I like to write about stuff, and I'm a conservative. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, you came on my radar with the, the piece that you wrote a few days ago called Trudeau, Government Moves to Make Expanded Surveillance Powers Over Financial Transactions Permanent. And uh, needless to say, this has been on my radar, on the Liberty Community's radar. I'm a libertarian, just to you know, as a disclaimer. Uh, but obviously, I think when the libertarians and conservatives see the same problem, uh, the world should be paying attention to it for sure. Uh, so go ahead and give us a little bit of background on on what they've done in Canada and why we should be concerned. Sure. So just as an aside, really quick, you know, you're a libertarian, I'm a conservative, but as an American conservative, uh, I, I care a lot about liberty. And I think this is an issue that conservatives and libertarians watching with horror what's going on in Canada uh, should be on the same, same side about um, because all of us see what Trudeau is doing and what, what's happening in Canada as rightly uh, a existential threat to the liberties that people in most Western democracies have enjoyed for most of our history. Um, so I was up in Ottawa for the past week. I, I got there last Sunday uh, on the ground talking to truckers, seeing what was going on. 
Um, and towards the end of last week, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, the cops moved in, militarized police force, thousands of police officers, heavy duty rifles, snipers up on the top of, uh, of, of buildings. I mean, really, really over the top stuff for a protest movement whose biggest defense was honking loudly. Um, and that, that was a big issue. And that's certainly something we can talk about. But to me, um, having spent the last week on the ground there, the far bigger threat than any sort of instances of police misconduct or, or brutality on the ground is what's happening at the top with Trudeau. And that's the stuff that isn't getting reported on as widely. But Trudeau, uh, many will remember uh, exactly a week ago today, um, promised that the emergency orders he invoked would be temporary, he said they'd be time limited and proportional to the threats. Uh, neither of those things were true. And quietly, what his government is moving to do now is to take probably the most authoritarian, dystopian aspect of his emergency order, which is uh, control over basically all forms of digital exchange, cryptocurrency, payment processors, et cetera, and bring those permanently under the control and their surveillance of his centralized government authority. Um, he's already shown what he's willing to do with those financial powers by unilaterally freezing bank accounts of not just the protesters, but people who donate to the protesters. Um, and now he wants well, basically- relatives. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And uh, and now he wants basically the entire internet to be subject to his control as well. <laughs> well, I think it was Reagan who said there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, in that regard, I think he nailed it. And and this is completely unsurprising uh, when they they use a, a an emergency declaration that is, as far as I'm concerned, completely misutilized. I mean, you you it's just outright totalitarian response to what was a peaceful protest. And um, well, let, let's start there. You you spent a week on the ground. Uh, what did you see? And, and was it as peaceful as I've reported on so far? It's, it's almost impossible to overstate just how peaceful it was. I mean, I, uh, I talked about this a little bit um, on, on previous programs. I've gone on to talk about it this week, but I was on the ground in Portland, Oregon during Black Lives Matter in 2020 um, reporting on that. And, uh, it's, you know, people tend to talk about protest movements and government responses as one sort of large phenomenon. Uh, but it's, you know, the, what was happening on the ground in Portland, at least, it was, there was genuine violence. People were throwing things at cops. They were burning down buildings. They were looting things, et cetera. None of that was happening here. I mean, the protesters were hyper aware of the fact that everyone from the corporate media to the Trudeau government to a lot of the provincial governments desperately wanted them to be violent. They desperately wanted to catch someone on camera getting in an altercation with a cop or yelling at someone or breaking something. Um, and it's really remarkable when you think about the fact that there's a largely decentralized protest movement with no real sort of hierarchical um, planning uh, that attracted thousands of people from across Canada that they were, they were able to keep it entirely peaceful um, you know, they had free food stand stands that were giving out coffee and soup that they were funding with the donations streaming in. Um, they had Christian groups there who were serving free food to the homeless population. They were, you know, dancing, singing. So the, the big complaint from city occupants was that there was a lot of honking, but they there was no violence on the ground. And I think that's actually a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Oh, it's astonishing. I mean, when you consider the the number of people involved, it's almost impossible <laughs> like, yeah, really. it's almost impossible. Like it, it seems like a phenomenon that could only happen in Canada, which is <laughs> kind right. of, which is kind of ironic because uh, I think this is, Canada is probably the last place I thought would respond in a North Korean style fashion to peaceful protests. Um, and and that's essentially what they're doing. And <clears throat> I, 
I got to be honest, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure this will sound antagonistic. I don't mean it to, to come off as such, but the conservatives who have historically backed the blue, I think that that has been the major disagreement between the libertarian and the conservative movement is that, you know, the libertarians and the conservatives, they both kind of view the state as an enemy or if not the enemy, a benign evil, you know, like where it's, mm. it just kind of is ever present and it's there and it's kind of something we have to deal with. Um, but the cops themselves have been, they basically took, not basically, they took a peaceful protest and they turned it into uh, a shit show. And it's just like, is, has this shaken your faith at all in the police? So this is a really interesting conversation because you're right. I mean, I've got a lot of libertarian friends being in D.C. on the right. You know, libertarians and conservatives often run in, in similar circles. Um, and it's it is. I mean, what's going on in Canada <clears throat> does, I think, force conservatives like me who are traditionally pro law enforcement um, to to think seriously about exactly what that means and what the limits of, of that position um, are. Uh, you've seen a turn in the discourse, at least online, of a lot of folks on the right, you know, especially some of the folks on the sort of Trumpy populist right, uh, against police and against law enforcement. And it's a totally understandable reaction when you see the insanely disproportionate reaction um, from law enforcement, where they're putting, you know, guys with with sniper rifles on the tops of roofs, uh, you know, looking down on people who were having a dance party, right? I mean, that's Crazy. We should all agree that it's absolutely insane. Um, to me, I think it's it's important to sort of separate like the rank and file beat cops from the feds and from the people who are actually making the serious political decisions. So I, I think the much more insidious thing that's happening, like we talked about at the beginning, um, is things like freezing bank accounts and and going after people's livelihoods and getting people fired for for making donations, which which has happened in Canada at this point. Uh, the the rank and file beat cops on the ground, you know, a, a lot of them did not want to be there. I mean, and it's really interesting. They, there was a lot of heat from left wing media and from people in the left wing government in Canada because you saw clips coming out of cops on the ground having friendly interactions with the truckers and fist bumping and and stuff like that, and they really were sort of very reluctant to carry out the authoritarian orders that they were being given. Um, but eventually, at the end, they did have to carry out those authoritarian orders. To me, I think the onus and the responsibility lies on the people who's giving those orders rather than the people who are actually performing the basic sort of job of, of, of keeping order. And that's maybe something libertarians and conservatives disagree about. I do, I do think that you need a certain sort of prerequisite of order in order for liberty to exist. And when that order deteriorates, the people that you should look to are the authorities who are giving the dictates, dictates to make that happen rather than, you know, the working class cop on the ground. Certainly. I, <clears throat> and I think that's a fair counter. It's just that it's ultimately Trudeau's dictates are powerless if he doesn't have the enforcement arm of the state to make it so. And, and I, you know, obviously my preference would have been that those cops being told to do what they were told to do would have stood with their people. I mean, mm -hmm. that that's if your job is to protect and serve and to honor whatever sort of document you're supposed to honor, you know, in the in America, it's the Constitution. Uh, they failed, you know, they failed in their duty and I'm going to hold them to account for that. You know, that's that's my perspective on it. That's not to say that I don't have far greater animus towards Trudeau and his administration and anybody involved in ordering these people to do that. Obviously, you and I agree. Those are the people that should be. Uh, held in the least regard, <laughs> but but uh, it's it's a very big problem, and I think that's the problem with the conservative movement has been that many of them have overlooked the 
that what it is is it it's the enforcement arm of the state and if the cops aren't willing to basically not take uh follow through with unconstitutional or whatever they would call it in canada orders uh you end up in a situation like this or were you at all surprised that they carried out these orders because uh, as you said and i know because i i uh, interviewed people um that i interviewed a block leader in ottawa that was on the ground he walked me through i had tears in my eyes as i saw all the uh, the letters of encouragement and the the writing on the trucks of mm -hmm. people saying like you're standing for us it was one of the most beautiful uplifting things i've ever done like gen genuinely the most optimistic i have ever felt in the past two years since the lockdowns began was after talking to him he was a guy he wasn't even a trucker he was just someone who supported the truckers that went down there in his toyota or his uh his like ford f-250 or whatever and blocked off one of the streets <clears throat> and and it was just it was so beautiful i i can't even overstate it. it was just so mm -hmm. so beautiful and and now, and, and, and he even told me, he even told me that the cops would, like, they knew him by name, they would come up and they would talk, and and after the media started to report on how friendly that they were being with the protesters, um, the cops that used to give him a fist bump or give him a hug or a high five or whatever, they stopped doing it, and they would even mm -hmm. tell them, like, look, we can't do this, the, the optics are too bad, and, um, and now, a week later, they are basically forced to be enemies, at the at the behest of the state and it's just it's so i don't know i don't know uh, do you have any uh, solution uh, besides <laughs> me being angry with the cops there like it, what do we do here is, is it just continue with these protests until trudeau steps down i really don't know what we do at this point yeah well to, to your last point i think continue with these protests until every single covid mandate is gone is a good place to start and that was the explicit goal um you're asking important questions about law enforcement and, and the cops. And, and I like freely admit coming onto your program right now after the last week and after also having been a sort of traditional conservative my, with my view of, of law enforcement, like I'm struggling to sort of think through exactly how I, how I answer these questions and how I think about it personally. So I don't have like definitive answers for you right now because I'm of, still of kind of figuring out what I think about it. But my, my conflicted feelings are precisely because of the tensions um, that, that you're identifying. The the reason, I mean, beyond my sort of basic conservative priors about law enforcement and about how you need civic order in order for liberty to flourish, um, the, the reason uh, that I'm, you know, sort of pro-cop pro in the American context is, you know, you look at things like spiking crime in, in our cities, and I've reported on that a lot. Like, it's a real problem. It's, it's killing people. And I think you need, like, a certain amount of police presence in order to, to respond to that. But with that being said... You, you see very quickly how that can go wrong on the ground in Canada, right? And I, I was, I mean, I was there when the cops rolled in on Friday morning. I was, I was there at the protest. And it's, again, like having been there the whole week, I had the exact same reaction that you did. It was one of the most beautiful sort of outpourings of peaceful love of freedom that I've seen in my lifetime. And um, for both conservatives and, and libertarians, I think, Looking at the last two years and how many people have just been willing to be docile in 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 you know both America and Canada and a lot of other countries in the West and just go along with these restrictions of our freedoms has been insanely depressing because you have this feeling sometimes of like have have these free, these populations of traditionally free people just completely forgotten that they're free right and this was this moment of 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 standing up and saying 
no, we haven't forgotten that we're free. We're not going down without a fight, right? So, I mean, I, I get goosebumps just talking about it. I was also I, I just got goosebumps as you said it, really. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's something that, like, I think you can kind of get from looking at the videos on Twitter, but you really have to be at the convoy to feel their, the energy. Um, because there's something revolutionary in and of itself of just refusing to be miserable, you know, in the face of these public health authorities and, you know, these nanny state authoritarians like Trudeau saying, you have to keep your mask on. You have to do what the government says. You have to stay locked down forever. You can't send your kids to school. You can't go outside and dance and hug people and shake hands, et cetera. Just, just standing up and doing all of those things, playing music, getting drunk with your friends, you know, being peaceful, hugging each other, you know, talking to strangers, right? Like that's actually revolutionary, right? It was this, it was this peaceful revolution. So all of that, the backdrop of, of, of something beautiful going on, and then watching a militarized police force of literally thousands of cops just, you know, just march in and just decimate, just roll through these guys, right? Like, that's, that's a radicalizing experience. Um, so, you know, that's all of, that's a very long way of me saying that I have a lot of sort of conflicting feelings right now. Um, but certainly what I saw on the ground is a perfect example of how uh, a state state police force um, can very viscerally and physically pose a threat to the liberties of, of uh, a populace. Well, I, I really appreciate your openness about that because uh, I think a lot of people would try and stick to the party line. And I think that you're being open and honest and, and you're reflecting on your priors, as you said. And I think that's important. That shows, um, you know, deep thought and actual consideration for what you're experiencing. And that's, that's rare. Uh, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, that's rare mm -hmm. is that a lot of people are not willing to do so. So kudos to you for that. Uh, I don't want to harp on the police the entire time, as uh, I'm sure that's, that's not even what I brought you on to do. Honestly, mm -hmm. I just, I just thought it was an interesting side note. Uh, what, what was, what was the feeling when they, I mean, you were there. Uh, yeah. What was the feeling when the, when the cops came in though? I mean, did the, the I, I saw some video where the protesters were were chanting, "We love you, we yeah. love you," and uh, mm -hmm. and didn't stop the cavalry from from running that lady over. And yep. uh, I guess I should start there. Also, were were you at that line when that lady yes. got run yeah. over? So I I, I was. Uh, what I mean, the thing with like covering protests, right, is like uh, once the sort of the line of police or sort of whatever sort of state force, you know, meets the line of protesters and there's a clash, everything, I don't know if I'm, I can cuss on this podcast, everything, you know, go, goes to crap. Uh, you know, it's it's chaos, right? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I can, right? It's everything yeah, it's goes good. to shit. Um, uh, but the, uh, but so like, you have to be right there to actually see what happens in those moments. And I was there, but I was you know, an, enough feet removed that all I saw was just chaos, you know, massive bodies, et cetera. Sure. You, you saw from the videos later on exactly what happened. And, you know, this, this old woman got trampled by a horse, uh, which is, you know, horrific. But the, the the broader, I mean, to your point about like the the We Love Cops chant, the protesters on the ground were sort of shocked. Like it was this really like, it, it was a shock that turned into outrage pretty quickly. But even if you talk to guys on the ground like 24 hours before as there started to be like a bigger police presence creeping in, they're like, oh, they're not going to come on. That's, it's all saber rattling. Like, you know, we know these guys, right? We're not, they're not going to do anything um, because they'd had that friendly relationship and because these are people from um, whatever the Canadian version of Trump country is, right? Like they're, these are sort of conservative background peoples. They're pro-cop. A lot of these guys have cops in their family. A lot of them were veterans. Right. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's different from like the Black Lives Matter protests I covered 
where they start with the first principle of antipathy to cops and the cops come in, they're like, we hate you. You're our enemy, right? Exactly. These guys were used to thinking of, of these cops as their people. And, you know, part of the reason for that friendly relationship at the beginning was that they were, I mean, these are from the same sort of strata of society, like working class cops, very similar kind of cultural background as working class truckers. Um, these were, these guys weren't supposed to do this to them, right? Like that was the feeling that they had. Uh, and that's why I think it was so shocking that not only did they do this to them, but at the most brutal kind of uh, aggressive over the top way, like there's something humiliating about bringing in guys on with sniper rifles, you know, like perched on top, right? To, that, that's, there's something sort of like, um, it's so completely over the top. And this is where I blame the authorities because they're the ones who gave the of course. Um, there's, it's, it's, it's this sort of show of domination of power that is not, it's no longer just about removing the protests, right? It's about showing to them that we own you right? That mm -hmm. you're not free, right? That actually you sort of, you don't toe the line. This is what we could do to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that was the really, not, not just sort of dystopian, authoritarian, Orwellian thing, but the really sort of infuriating thing about it is like, these are kind, good people who are here setting up free food to serve to homeless people. And they're getting crushed by this government that wants to prove to them that they only exist by, you know, at, at, the, at Trudeau's pleasure. Um, and that's completely unbefitting of a free society. Yes, I could not agree more. And uh, also, for those that don't know, they had uh, the, the, you know, the block leader that I spoke with that I had on my show twice. Um, he, he was responsible for, I think it, it was called the utility lane or something like that. But basically, you know, a lot of people have been trying to compare and contrast the Black Lives Matter protests to this protest. And, and while there are obviously some similarities, uh, there are also major differences in that when Black Lives Matter were to shut down roads, they would made it, make it so that no one could get through. These mm -hmm. guys went out of their way based off of the instructions of the local police that, hey, we have to have the capacity to get emergency vehicles through here. Yep. And the truckers went out of their way to make that so. I mean, they were yep. basically, they had replaced the police in a sense and that they were policing themselves. They were allowing for this utility lane on every street so that anybody that was in an emergency situation was able to get through. And I just thought that was so responsible and so beautiful of them to do that. And I mean, it was also smart. It was savvy. Like tactically, it was intelligent that you were going to make it so that there was as little excuse as possible for them to label you terrorists and come through and suppress you as such. And mm -hmm. even with that, it didn't fucking matter. And I just think that's so astonishing, you know, like, and, and in a weird way, I'm kind of grateful for it because it 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 took the veneer of of kindness and concern for its people off of the state and allowed yes. people to see exactly what it is. You know, this is yes. about domination. If you rise up, if you think that you stand independent or you can stand toward the state for more than a couple weeks of partying in the in the you know the capital or whatever, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> they, they will come in with with their stormtroopers and they will kick your ass out of there. And that's exactly what they've done. Uh, if you could give us a little update on the status today, uh, I, I have I've just got back from Mexico. I've been traveling for the past week, so I I was not able to stay on top of this story as well as I should have. Um, is it over? Are these guys all moved out? It's so I'm I'm back in D.C. now. I got back la uh, last night. So, but from by the time I left, and because I was I was there you know, the morning, yesterday morning, and then I, I flew right back. So uh, pretty recently, it's it's pretty much over. I mean, there's a few stragglers, there's a few hangers on, but by the time I was leaving, 
there was a long line as far as the eye could see of tow trucks. Uh, every tow truck in Canada, <laughs> I think, um, uh, was was there. So basically, they had had this, you know, completely methodical planned out operation. That was the other thing, by the way, is like you watched how the cops moved in. It was incredibly methodical and st yeah. strategic and, and, and surgical. Like this was they had been planning this clearly for days, right? Like um, exactly how they're going to do it. Like they so they came in from one side, they came in from the other side. All of a sudden, the protesters look up and they're boxed in on all sides. They can't leave. Right. And they've got a line of cops in full ride gear, some of whom are carrying, you know, heavy duty, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, weaponry um, that have, have boxed in the convoy. So they're surrounded. And then the the line of riot, of riot cops on all sides just pushes in a foot and then another foot and then another foot. And the convoy gets smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden you have the, you know, the truckers sort of in this small circle on the, on the square right outside of the parliament building completely boxed in by thousands of cops on either side with, by the way, guys with sniper rifles up on top, right? So like that, that's, the, that's the, the sort of backdrop. And then once that happens and you get all these guys cleared out, you make all the necessary arrests, then you bring in the tow trucks. Um, and that's kind of the stage that we were at uh, uh, by, the, by, the, by the time I left. Um, so it's, it's basically over. I will say like, this is something, I think I'm gonna write a, a longer piece about this later this week. Like the, the, the sort of horror of, of what we saw at the end of last week aside, um, and the, the justifiable righteous anger that a lot of people feel about it. It's worth noting, like, the truckers notched some enormous wins uh, in the very short time that they're around. I mean, they, in the time, in the, the 21, 22 days that they existed, five provinces dismantled their vaccine mandate. Um, Alberta got rid of it, everything, masking, everything. Like, they're completely, you know, they've returned to sort of pre-pandemic levels in terms of mandates. And Canada got rid of one of the main things that sparked the, the trucker um, revolt in the first place, which is the quarantine um, uh, requirement for people coming across the border, which basically made the trucker job impossible, especially if you weren't, weren't vaccinated. Um, so there's a long way to go, right? And what Trudeau is doing right now, I think, is really, really uh, a disturbing foreshadowing for the sort of what's been set in motion. Um, but like you said, that stuff was already happening. And in many ways, this just exposed the sort of unvarnished face of what was going on. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at The Daily Job Hunt. The Daily Job Hunt is a once daily newsletter that hits your inbox every morning, gives you some information on how to become a better job applicant and to pursue the job of your dreams, whether it be video resumes or any uh, a long list of new tactics that work in a modern world. Some of the old advice that you've been receiving is valueless. I assure you, there's millions of job openings that are not being addressed because a lot of people are uh, not willing to work given all the stimulus stuff that's been put out there. But a lot of those people are getting back to work now. If you are in a position of being in a job that you are not content with, now's your opportunity to go out and get that job of your dreams or start the business of your dreams. Either path I highly recommend changed my life personally. It means the world to me that I get to help people get on that path and join me uh, in freedom and financial freedom. Go to crash.co forward slash daily to sign up for the daily job hunt newsletter. Again, that's crash.co. And at the same time, they notch real wins in pushing back against, they, they really did get a lot of these mandates out of there and they sparked a global revolution. I mean, I, I know some people involved uh, uh, organizing the American version that's kicking off next month. You've got an Israeli trucker convoy, an Australian trucker convoy, a Polish, German, Finnish, you know, it's happening everywhere now. Like there's something beautifully poetic about 
the truckers of the world in every single country in the West linking arms to bring down the international COVID regime. Like I can't think of, that's pure poetry to me, right? Like, I can't think of any better group than these working class guys didn't go to college, drive big rigs for their life, standing up, giving the middle finger to these sort of international technocrats who want them to live under this, this sort of mandate regime forever and bringing the whole thing down. So the truckers have a lot to be proud of as much as we should be outraged at the way that they were treated. Um, and I think in, in some ways we're just getting started. I love it. And I'll, I'll go a step further and say that I think, well, first, let's point out the irony that they are rising up against the politicians who have ran on the backs of blue collar workers mm -hmm. for allegedly, yeah, for decades. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's what they claim, yeah. at least in language, but certainly not in action. And uh, and this really proved it once and for all that, you know, the Democrats do not stand for working class people. And if to believe otherwise is lunacy. Um, but I'll, I'll take it one step further in your accolades to the truckers and the appreciation you're showing. I I tweeted out a couple of days ago and it kind of went viral that I, I just said, I want people to realize that it's not just the the lifting of the mandates in across Canada, uh, but we as Americans should show appreciation for the fact that many blue cities have lifted vax mandates and vax mm -hmm. pass uh, requirements. And, and I think that it would be uh, a mistake not to think that it was the threat of a massive trucker convoy in America uh, right. that that played a, a role in that decision making process. And I, I, as you said, I think it's now uh, the probably the first domino in a global kind of peaceful, quasi peaceful revolution. I, I hope it stays peaceful. I mean, th this is the thing that that I'm really torn with is that ultimately, you know, we experience on a day to day basis far greater tyranny than our forefathers did at the revolution. I mean, we do. It's mm -hmm. it's undeniable. Uh, mm -hmm. And ultimately, I'm a very peaceful person. You know, I don't, I have no interest in that. It, the whole reason I started my show is because I wanted to be left alone and people wouldn't leave me alone. And that's mm -hmm. why I titled this Liberty Lockdown because it was like these lockdowns just made the tyranny unbearable. They made it so that I could no longer function in a free society and just keep my head down and just try and stay away from the oppression now the oppression is on everyone it's ever present and i don't know what we do man like is is there a, a democratic solution to this besides obviously the the rolling out trucker convoys that uh, across the globe which i think will continue to show dividends um as long as these people are in power that are willing to freeze assets uh we've got a lot of work to do Right. So I'm, I'm with you in that I, I don't think that sort of um, uh, violence and, and violent revolution is, um, is the way to go. I am for, for, uh, for to be very clear, like I'm for, I'm for a peaceful response. I think, um, again, like to your point about the founders and, and the founding generation, if you get into sort of like Lockean political theory about when a revolution is justified, one of the things that I think some people who flirt with violence don't fully consider it, but something the founders understood very clearly is uh, you can't, you can't, play around with political violence. Like if you want no. to use violent means to try to overthrow a government, you better be damn ready to actually start a revolution, right? Like this is, I mean, the founders talked about this regularly. They, they, they the reason they said they, they pledged their lives and their sacred honors. Um, and the reason that Ben Franklin said, we're either going to hang together or going to hang separately is they understood that once you sign the declaration of independence, that's your life, right? Like yeah. you're, it's, you don't, you don't get to sort of play around with a little bit of anarchy and then kind of go back to having your rights as a private citizen. Like if you are revolting against a regime, you better be prepared to take it on um, because it, because, because that's, 
that you you are now a revolutionary and you're going to yeah. be treated as such, right? So like De that's Declar something that I think Declaration ahead, of Independence yeah. could have been otherwise titled Declaration of uh, Suicide or Liberty. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's, that's you know that's, that's the founders in so many words said that, right? Like yeah. so I think that's some of the guys you know on on Twitter sometimes you see guys kind of playing around with uh, fantasizing about political violence. It's like well, I don't. You no, really gotta no. you gotta really understand the implications of what you're saying here, right? So all I, that being I said, aside, agree. right. So so all that being said, aside, I think um, again, like one of the things that we were talking about earlier is the best way to stand up and to actually reclaim a semblance of the liberties that what were bequeathed to us by our forefathers um, that have been all but completely extinguished now um, is to just refuse to not be free, to be free and to be you know, uh, uh, expressively. I mean, that was, again, like what I was saying earlier, I, I wrote about this last week a little bit, like the most beautiful thing about what the truckers were doing is that they were happy and they were, and they were openly uh, in your face about the fact that they were free and they weren't going to accept a state of unfreedom, no matter what, you know, whatever the Canadian version of Anthony Fauci says, no matter what the public health officials said about their liberty being irresponsible. It's like, no, I'm going to hug people and shake people's hands. I'm going to have a beer with my friend and I'm going to dance to music and, you know, we're going to eat good food and like, and we're going to do it in front of the parliament building, Justin Trudeau. Like, you know, <laughs> we're right here, you know, we're not going yeah. away. Like, that was the thing about it. And that, like, that's one of the reasons they're so successful is that's attractive. Like, the, the best thing about all this and the, the movement that you're seeing sort of mobilized everywhere now is that it turns out like Americans and Canadians have not completely forgotten that they're free, right? Like the reason that you saw thousands and thousands of Canadians flocking in more every single weekend, like this past weekend was supposed to be the biggest one yet, um, but the cops shut off every single entrance into the city so that people couldn't get in. So you had thousands of Canadians trying to get in to join and the cops you know, shut it down, right? But like right. the reason it was gaining momentum is all of a sudden people woke up and they said like, wait, no, no, that's what it's supposed to be like to live in a free country right? Like you just show them what it's like to be free. And it's like, what, isn't this better than putting on four masks and trying to explain to your five-year-old that, that another, you know, week of school got canceled and you can't, they can't go over to their, you know, friend's play date unless they get their seventh booster shot, right? Like, isn't this better, right? Like actually just living the way that we want to, um, you know, that, 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 like that sort of spirit of freedom is still very much written into the soul and the sort of subconscious of, countries, particularly those of us like America and Canada, which share this British tradition of liberty. Um, and it just has to be awakened again, right? Like you have to remind people that they're free and they start to wake up just like they did in Canada. So God bless the truckers. I hope the same thing happens in, in the United States. Um, it's, it's reminding people that they're free and that they don't have to live this way, I think is the main way to do this. Beautifully said. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly why the media has, has gone full court press in trying to destroy DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Uh, is of because course. because he was the the counterexample, not just of you know the anti-COVID response or the anti-lockdown response to COVID, um, but also because people got to see like oh this not only does this work but these people are happier oh yes. and we have yes. and we also have New York politicians that vacation here and mm -hmm. they don't mask up and they then they come back and they you know make children mask up in in schools and it's like. Well, the the cognitive dissonance at some point gets so severe that people have to go like, oh fuck, I'm being lied to. Like I'm being mm -hmm. lied to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think your point about freedom not just being a descriptive but a prescriptive. Like we we have to be it. You know, yes. like we have to actually be free and and enjoy it in a way that like is compelling because being free is better. 
Like I, it's not, it's not just like uh, my opinion. Like it is better. Mm-hmm. It's fucking <laughs> awesome. And and this is why I I've tried to you know show by I moved from California to Florida about six months ago and congrats. And, yeah, thank you. And I was born and raised in California, and it was heartbreaking. It was genuinely heartbreaking to get out of there, but. I don't regret it. And, and I'm trying to, you know, live out my principles and, and show people that like, we don't have to suffer under these people as long as we have the capacity to migrate to, and we still have, you know, a federalist system where you have some other options and alternatives that are, are more free. Um, you should give your money and your vote and your time and your labor and your energy to these systems. Uh, personally, it has made me into a secessionist in that I think that ultimately the federal system uh, the federal government system is so corrupted with the World Economic Forum I- influence mm. and things like that that I don't think that it's possible to claw back and and kind of curtail some of the tyrannical aspects of the regime at the federal level. I know conservatives are knee-jerk, very opposed to this historically. Well, some uh, of them you've seen, but some, some of them have but, yeah, increased. Yeah, yeah. I so disagree, I, I wanted... but yeah, but we can. Oh, so I you mean, do we... disagree. So I, I, I wrote, there's the national divorce discourse comes up every once in a while. And I wrote a, a column for the spectator a few, couple, maybe a couple months ago now about why I think um, it's a bad idea. And also it's just impractical because okay. our, our political divides are urban rural, right? Like it, when during the civil war it was South North, it was uh, just much more easier to do on a workable level. Right. right. Um, you know, now you'd have to have this sort of version of like the India Pakistan partition where you have millions of people migrating out of blue cities and red states to go to uh you know uh, blue areas and right i mean it was just on a workability level it doesn't make sense you, well you <laughs> are but you're seeing it happen within the context of a of a, some kind of national union right like to me the like i i am clear-eyed about just how insane things have gotten at the federal level and how completely out of control the federal bureaucracy is and this sort of you know ugly dystopian marriage of corporate power and, and you know federal power and you know uh, big tech companies in silicon valley like i believe me this is what i sort of talk about and write about for a living it's it's really bad anyone yeah. who tells you it isn't it isn't bad is not paying attention or is getting you know probably paid by uh some interest <laughs> that tells them to say it's not bad right um or or they're they're benefiting from the suppression of their political uh opponents yes, that, right you know. or some combination of all three right you know right. So that's usually what it is but the 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 there are tools you know, written into like our, I, I'm, you know, every time I sort of think about this, I'm just struck at just the sort of genius of our original constitutional design. Like our founders were really, really well versed in the history of human politics and human nature. And there are a lot of mechanisms and tools written into our constitutional system that are still at our disposal. And one, you know, one thing that you see happening right now in Florida, right, is Ron DeSantis better than any Republican politician in my lifetime gets it, right? He understands exactly what's at stake. And he is building an alternative model in Florida that is capable, or is at least is trying to get to a point where it's capable of resisting the encroachments of the federal government, right? And he, you see him going to war with Joe Biden and, and the Biden administration and the sort of deep state and winning. Um, and and uh, they hate him for it. But it's also why Florida is one of the most, you know, one of the fastest growing states in the country, for all the reasons that you said, for the same reason that you moved to Florida, you're seeing tons of other people move to Florida as well, right? So we have powerful red states. Greg Abbott doesn't really get it in Texas, but that's another another option that like, you know, it's possible to elect politicians that do get it because especially the next generation of conservatives and libertarians are much more keyed into this stuff than the previous one is. So 
Yes, I I agree. Um, so the so there are very powerful locus points of resistance um, that still have tools of resistance built into the federalist system um, that I think we should look at before we start talking about something like secession, which I think is you know a bad idea for for any number of reasons. Although I have plenty of friends um, who who disagree, so I don't you know I don't I don't uh, disrespect the opinion. But just as a really quick aside about DeSantis, I met a woman in Ottawa from Toronto wearing a Ron DeSantis hat. Um, she's a, a black woman. She's the daughter of uh, Kenyan immigrants. And her mom spent um, three years in a Kenyan prison for fighting colonial rule. And she's like, I feel like I'm carrying on her legacy, you know, like fighting uh, for freedom. Yeah. It was amazing. I posted a picture of it. Um, uh, it's she's she's the best. But it's like, you know, again, like the, the message of freedom, right? Just seeing what DeSantis is doing in Florida, seeing how people are living makes it up you know, transcends borders, makes it up to Canada. People are wearing DeSantis hats up there. They know who he is because people notice. Uh, and that's, I think that's the best part about it. <clears throat> no disagreement there. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that there has, I mean, this is just so, this is why DeSantis has been so important over the past couple mm -hmm. of years. It's like he, uh, you know, Reagan talked about the, the signing, shining city on the hill type language. It's like, well, Florida became that, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was the one, thing that was standing above everything else that was like hey there's still an alternative option and i i think this is why the conspiracy theories have flourished so much over the past two years is that we went from this value of western liberal democratic you know idealism um that that was the perception that there was all these governments that were operating in that fashion and many of them have responded to covid in a more harsh fashion than even some of the dictator ran countries across the planet and it's just you you kind of I, at least i personally have failed to come away concluding that this isn't orchestrated in some fashion like mm. uh, i just don't understand how all of these countries got it so egregiously wrong and they did it in lockstep it, it doesn't make any sense to me have you done any uh writing or research on on that area as to like because i mean especially in hindsight I knew it early on. This is why my show came to prominence is that I was calling out all of the misinformation that was CDC dictates and, and things like that. Um, but in, in, you know, obviously in hindsight, even millions and millions more people have concluded what I concluded two years ago is that this is a completely ascientific, unproductive way of responding to a respiratory virus. Like, right. Right. <laughs> and how yeah. did it happen? Do you know? Well, just on, on the last point, I mean, if you want to look at the actual scientific way, rational way to respond it, the one Western liberal democracy that actually was sane was Sweden. I mean, mm -hmm. I, people forget now, right? Like, uh, you know, every single liberal and sort of COVID hawk uh, in the rest of the West was looking at Sweden, which was traditionally, you know, the shining sort of example of progressive democracy for them just did not lock down, you know? And everyone was going, oh, God, oh, my God, oh, you know, Sweden, they're, they're gonna, all going to die, right? Like, it turns out they actually, you know, did sort of middle of the pack in terms of... Um, uh, COVID deaths and right. no one lost their job and they yeah. still went to school and they basically still enjoyed their way of life and they didn't wreak havoc on their population, you know, and have a suicide epidemic, mental health crisis, you know, addiction through the roof, et cetera, et cetera, that every other population um, experienced. So that's like the one sort of example of what an actual scientific, rational response to COVID would be, right? Which is uh, you invest a lot in hospital infrastructure. Uh, you pay a special care to uh, to sort of elderly people and at-risk uh, comorbidity populations and make sure that they get the help that they need and uh, make sure that they're sort of aware of what they need to do and not interact with people. And then you pretty much let everyone else be free and go about their day because they're going to survive if they get it. 
which is exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration called for a year and a half ago. And those people, like these really right. highly esteemed professors, were basically blacklisted over it. It's just amazing. Right. And that, I think, to, to, the, to your earlier point, like, as far as uh, uh, the pandemic being orchestrated, I, I think I, I don't like that's not the language I use. I don't think there are people sitting in like a back room, sort of, uh, you know, smoky, smoke filled room, uh, deciding that we were going to have a pandemic is like a pretext for, for, for something happening. But oh, the, no, no, excuse me. L let me clarify. Sure. I didn't I didn't say that the pandemic was orchestrated. I said the response to it was in, mm. in that they it's just it's just interesting that they would all roll out these ascientific sure. totalitarian methodologies. Yeah. Well, and that I think that the answer to that, I think, is like hiding in plain sight, which is pretty obvious, which is like all of these people, all the public health bureaucrats, you know, Fauci and, you know, his sort of counterparts in the UK and Australia, et cetera, like they all know each other. They all went to the same schools. They all uh, go to the same conferences. Um, they write and publish for the same like this is what, what the what the the COVID pandemic has exposed Um you know, which is something that a lot of us have sort of known for a long time, but I think a lot of people more are keyed into it, is this international technocratic class of people who they're the same people. Again, you talk about the marriage between sort of big corporate power and, and the federal government. It's the same people in the executive branch, in the deep state, in Silicon Valley, at, on the boards of our Fortune 500 companies, in the public health bureaucracy, right? Like, uh, you know, Biden's like a significant number of people on Biden's team just came from big tech companies. They worked in the Obama administration during Trump. They went to Silicon Valley and now they came right back into the, you know, Biden. So you think Biden's going to like, you know, do anything about big tech? Of course not. Like it's the same people. Right. So like that class of people means that you have, you know, uh, Trudeau and and the people in the Biden administration, like they are. They, they know each other, they are from the same class of people, and they have enormous disdain for the actual native populations of their own countries. Um, and they think that concerns about their liberties is sort of ridiculous, antiquated, you know, bigoted, extremist, whatever, you know, pick your buzzword. Uh, and by the way, like the same people that we're talking about also run the media. So their talking <laughs> points get echoed, right? So like all, you saw all of that, that entire sort of international machine kick into gear in COVID in the most absurd extreme version, I think, illustration that we've seen yet. And it sort of just laid bare all of the sort of buzzwords and sort of fantasy sort of ideological constructs they'd been projecting to legitimate their own power for, for decades. All of a sudden, it just fell apart. Everyone's like, I, okay, now, now I see what you're doing. Now I see what you're about. Um, and I think it was radicalizing for a lot of people. It was radicalizing for me, at least, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, <laughs> I don't want to say it uh, you know, out loud because then they'll label me as a radical. But yeah, it radicalized me, too. Uh, yeah, they, uh, I think that you know, whether or not you go the conspiracy route on it, basically what you described was a conspiracy. It, like, they conspired because mm -hmm. they are all of the same thought process like they they believe in technocracy they believe mm -hmm. in having an elite that knows better than these yes. idiot plebs and mm -hmm. they tell them what to do at the at the you know business end of a gun and they better do it and that's and they, and it's for their own good because ultimately these people don't know what they're doing uh, and they don't know how to take care of themselves and blah 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 and i mean i think that that's another uh, to spin this optimistically this has been a really good thing for people to see because these people have been in power for decades and and people were unaware. They didn't understand that they were ruled by these monsters. <laughs> and, now, yeah. and now it's very, very clear you are ruled, not, not just ruled by monsters, but monsters that hate you, that want to yes. eat you. And, yes. and it's, I mean, it's horrifying to, to have that realization. It, it was like 
as a libertarian, I've all, I've suspected it and I've I've thought it deeply and I felt it deeply for a long time, but I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know it for damn mm -hmm. sure. Now I know it, and I think a lot of people that uh, I can't even imagine how painful this experience has been for someone who really believed in the goodness of governments or, or governance. Uh, and you know, the conservatives are the ones that come to mind because they they have been the people that that really had faith in checks and balances and that, you know, the people that are, that run for political office, they do it out of the goodness of their own heart. You know, and I'm not all of them, but I'm just saying broadly, they, mm. they, they believe in that stuff. And I, what, what is, I'm sure you're more uh, tied in with the conservative community. What has the experience been like for them as they've realized this? What has the experience of the last two years been on yeah. the right? <laughs> Where do I begin? Uh, no, I mean, I think like, uh, Again, like one of the things we were talking about earlier is, so I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'm Gen Z, I'm, I guess I'm on the, uh, the upper end of Gen Z, and something that I've written about a lot, I'm, for the Novak Project I'm doing, I'm, I'm writing a book about it actually, which is that the, the, um, the young right, the next generation of right-wingers, and you know more about libertarians than I do, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same thing on the libertarian end, is radical as hell. I mean, these guys talk about like radicalization, like these guys are completely uninterested in the sort of old slogans and bumper stickers about institutionalism and uh, et cetera, et cetera, of, of the sort of old generation of think tank conservatives. Like these guys see how insane everything has gotten and they go, I, I, I want to burn it all down, right? I mean, sometimes some of my friends, I have to like, be like, okay, take a, take a deep breath. And I'm like, you know, just, <laughs> just think about what you're saying, you know, right? Like we were talking about with so, some so of the you, violence earlier. Um, you're telling me yeah, that sorry, the 38 versus 35 percent top tax bracket debate is is dead. I, I would love that to be the case. Is that not the most important defining <laughs> issue in Western civilization? Yeah, no, exactly. No, 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 no. I mean, this is you know, it's uh, it's these guys are in some ways. I think a lot of them think of themselves as revolutionaries or, or counter revolutionaries. I think is the better term because sure. what, what we've realized watching what's been happening the last few years is like there was this revolution that happened very slowly over the course of the last century where. Our, the traditional system, the traditional form of government that the founders gave us was completely eaten from the inside out by this bureaucratic, technocratic class. And what we live under now is this is completely unrecognizable from what the sort of system of government was supposed to look like. Um, so it, it is a counter revolution that is necessary to reform some 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 form of small R Republican self-government. Um, I think like th there's different kinds of libertarians too, right? So like the difference between conservatives and the sort of libertarians in DC, at least, and I, I have a, a lot of my friends who are libertarians are are sort of folk libertarians, which they, they when they talk about what we're talking about, they sound a lot more like you in terms of this sort of real suspicion of this entire regime, which is both this marriage of corporate power and uh, federal power. Um, right. At least a lot of libertarians in DC, um, what they I think what sort of young more radical conservatives like like me are uh, are get frustrated with about them is they often draw these lines between private and public power that to my mind don't really exist anymore. Um, and so they will defend Silicon Valley and major corporate power structures um, when I think that those companies basically uh, are destroying the country and you know, actually need to be acted against aggressively. Uh, and of course there's you know, plenty of things to, to sort of debate with all that stuff. But to me, it's like, DeSantis is a perfect example of that. Like, you know, he just stands up and says, no, you can't, if you're a, a technology platform, a social media platform operating in Florida, you can't deplatform 
politicians. Sorry, you can't do it, right? Like, so some people, like in some libertarian circles, here would be like, "Well, you can't do that because it's a private company or something." something. Slippery like, no, 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 slope. No, you can't, you can't tell it. a private business what to do. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm standing up for freedom, right? And this is an existential threat to freedom, and you can't do it. Period. Right? Like, that's the kind of whatever you want to call it, conservatism, libertarianism, it doesn't really matter to me. Like, I, 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 I just, I just am not interested in, you know, massive conglomerations of power being able to do that to people. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's un-American, and I think that we should be doing everything we can to stop it. Whatever ideology that is, that's, you know, my <laughs> ideology. I think it's called a pragmatic ideology. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this has been a, a major point of contention amongst libertarians, of course, mm -hmm. and and there is this continuing debate about, you know, whether or not it is... Uh, here, here's my perspective on it. It's like, is it using statism? Yes. But it is statism as a defensive force, which libertarians believe in the non-aggression principle. If you have been aggressed upon, you have a right to defend yourself. In my view, if you're using the state at a local level to defend yourself from a federal incursion, that is a proper libertarian answer to that because the alternative is violence. And what is right. our highest priority? It's peace. Uh, right. So to me, I think that it's, it's the best of a bunch of bad options. And I don't think that the, it's nearly as uh, unprincipled as many libertarians believe it to be. So uh, just to give you an idea of my vantage point on it, there are, obviously there are many libertarians that disagree with me and that's fine. Um, but as for the, the uh, what's it called? The, the DC think tank libertarians, uh, there is not much uh, friendliness between them and what I consider the actual liberty movement, which is, yes. <laughs> I will consider myself a spokesman for to some extent uh, the, we are absolutely privy to the, the unholy alliance of corporate power with government power. And I think that, you know, my eyes have been open to that for quite some time, but it got to be so stark that it was, you, everyone had to notice it over the past couple of years, especially with the treatment of Trump. Um, even though I wasn't a Trump, you know, supporter per se, it, it was just so obvious that what they were doing with the constant media uh, push to cover any sort of allegation against him that was completely unfounded and and deliver it as if it were fact. And then then to say, oh, well, you know, after the election, yeah, yeah, sure, all the steel dossier, all this shit was bullshit. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, that's not okay. And that is a, a election interference, as far as I'm concerned. If you are propagating misinformation in order to get someone out of power, and then you correct it afterwards, but you're also suppressing legitimate stories about Hunter uh, Biden's mm -hmm. laptop and things like that. It's like, but whether or not I support Trump, I don't want to fucking live in a country that does that. You know, like yeah. it's yeah. it's pure evil. So. Yeah, it's not self government anymore, right? Like if the no. if if uh, you have a bunch of bureaucrats in Silicon Valley who get to decide whether or not the the guy that the people of America elected to represent them gets to have an access to the public square, right? Like okay, like okay, you don't live in the self governing country anymore, right? Like that's we're talking about, and this is I mean what you're saying. This is why what I was saying earlier was I have a lot of affection for you know in the sort of pointy-headed nerdy conservative circles it's we distinguish between like folk libertarianism and like dc libertarianism right like right. folk libertarianism it, we have way more in common than i think we actually disagree about um because we both sort of ha see the, the fundamental problem and the threat to self-government in broadly the same terms um right. the other thing that i'll just say about like stuff like tech and all of these major sort of institutional powers that are a threat to the american way of life traditionally understood is um it, it's 
these companies aren't just private companies. Like they're actually benefiting from sweetheart government deals like section 230, right? That's a, a specific targeted massive government handout to shield these guys from liability. Um, and not to mention all of the special targeted tax breaks they've gotten and government investment, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is, these are not, this is not like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, free market capitalist undertaking, right? Like these guys are in bed with the government every single day. Why do you think Facebook has like lobbyists on the Hill every day, right? It's for, because that's where their bread gets buttered, right? Same thing, you know, like we talk about sort of the radicalization of, uh, this sort of elite technocratic class in our elite universities, where did the elite universities get all their money from? you're in my pockets, right? Like taxpayer dollars. So like, if you want to talk about a, a, a sort of a, a way to wage war on the regime consistent with liberty principles, just stop giving taxpayer dollars to the universities, just point blank. Say, or say, if you want our money, you have to abide by like a basic conduct of free speech. That's not big government. That's just saying like, that's not expanding government coercive power. It's just saying, you know, it, taxpayer dollars should be spent on things that are in the interest of taxpayers. You know, mind blowing concept, I know, right? But like, that's actually though, that's how you do it. It's not like, I don't think that's like statism. Same thing with, you know, the, the big tech stuff and going back to like Ottawa and, and, and Canada and authoritarianism, like you're seeing right now how this unholy marriage between semi-private corporate power, the banks, the payment processors, right? Like the, you know, the big tech companies and, uh, and, and government actually in practice manifests in tyranny, right? Like that's, What's happening in Canada, that's our future if we don't actually sort of wake up and, and, and make a major course correction right now. So you can wax poetic all you want about like Twitter's unalienable right, you know, to, to censor at will or something, right? It's like, okay, fine. But I hope you like living in a country where like unaccountable bureaucrats uh, get to decide whether or not you have a bank account, right? I mean, that's, that's really what we're talking about. Those are the stakes. Yeah, I, that's well said again. I, I think that, you know, well, first off, let's add that many of these tech giants were, they're not just deeply in bed with government now. They, from their inception, mm -hmm. they were, many of them were funded and backed and, and they were projects of DARPA and things like that. So like, this is all statism. Like, and I don't, I don't see a, a major distinction uh, to call them a private business is just so diluted. It's so detached from the reality of the situation and it frustrates the living hell out of me dealing with libertarians that talk like that because it's just not true. It's just not, mm -hmm. it's not based yeah. in reality at all. So uh, I share your frustration. I think that, uh, and I agree with you that the, the quote unquote folk libertarian, which I've actually never heard the term before, but I'll, I'll be using that mm -hmm. more often. Um, and, and the, the new right, the, you know, the young conservative movement, um, as you said, do have a ton in common. I think that the, the, the major disagreement points you guys have in, in my view, and this will sound, paternalistic and i don't mean it to but you guys have gotten better on you know you mm -hmm. like you aren't as pro-war you're not as pro-intervention as you once were totally um you're not as drug warrior oriented mm -hmm. as you once were and also you know you're just getting closer to us or we're getting closer to you i don't know what it is but converging um, i think exactly yeah. exactly and i and i think that as as we're describing the libertarians have got better about not uh, just dutifully defending any business uh, as this being this holy altruistic good it's like no these people are fucking evil and they're in bed with the government and the distinction between the two is so blurred that it might as well not even exist and don't trust these people treat them like they are the government and if you fight the government then you should be fighting big tech and the oligopoly that exists because of it so i'm yeah. hopeful man i i think that because of the young conservative movement and the kind of the grassroots liberty 
movement. Um, I think those two things in alignment can actually get some shit done. What, what's your uh, prognosis for, you know, democratic political solutions moving forward? And do you have a, a pick for 2024 that could actually save us? Because I need oh, I need a savior. DeSantis. Buddy. I mean, let's, yeah. you know, DeSantis is, <laughs> it's not an original point. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm curious what you think. I imagine living in Florida, you're probably partial uh, to, to Ron as well, but. I am, but I, you know, it's uh, because of his. I, I don't think he's as anti-war as I would like him to be. Um, yeah, his record in Congress, he was, but it was also a different time, so it'll be interesting true, to see how he runs. True, true. It, it still concerns me, though. You know, as a <laughs> as a libertarian, I don't want to. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't really. I'm not going to put any faith into a politician on the federal level because I think that the what we witness with Donald Trump is that like it doesn't really matter. Like <laughs> the deep state right. gets what it wants; they do what they want. And and that's a that's a problem that's so so much bigger than any singular election. It's like yep. even if even if Trump was privy to how how corrupt and insidious all of this stuff was, and he had filled his his uh, his office with people that I would have supported as opposed to putting in absolute scum of the earth people, which yeah. is what he did do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it would have made a tremendous difference. I think that's one one mistake that people make is like, oh, Trump didn't know, so he. He filled it with, uh, you know, Bolton and a bunch of assholes that are responsible for war crimes and shit like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I don't think that's what it is. I think that the president is not nearly as powerful as we think, and that the the apparatus that actually runs the country is embedded in a way that no singular election can get in there unless you have a truly revolutionary figure that that understands on a deep level and is willing to risk everything, including his life, to purge these people from the yeah. ranks of government. It, it, do you see that in DeSantis? Does he have that level of courage? So that's a really important point, because I think to your point about like Trump knowing versus I think it's both. Right. Like yeah. so on, on the one hand, Trump didn't know uh, because like so I, I I'm someone who views Trump as like a positive development in the right. Like to your point earlier, like I think the right or at least sort of my segment of the young right has gotten better. And a large part of it is because of the Trump era, like seeing what happened, seeing sort of aspects of his message that broke from traditional conservative orthodoxy, uh, him sort of abandoning the sort of sunny, you know, forward looking, everything is great conservative message, right? Like, I mean, I, I like Reagan, right? Like what he was saying back then made more sense, but conservatives talking about that in 20, by 2016, is like, wake up, you know, like stop talking, <laughs> like no one wants to hear that anymore, right? Like talk right. about what's actually happening, right? Like that's clearly what the Republican voter base wanted and Trump talking that way, I think made a lot of us sort of go, whoa, you know, wait, what's what's going on, right? So all of that is good, but like he was also kind of a moron. And I, I don't know how your, your viewers, this is, you know, some of my Trumpier friends, like it pisses them off when I say this sometimes, but it's like, he was, like the fact that he had no background in politics was good on the one hand, but also right. meant he came in and had literally no idea how government worked or even how it was, how it was supposed to work uh, and was, you know, emotionally immature and, you know, prone to sort of outbursts, et cetera. Like all that stuff made him less, less an ideal sort of, um, uh, tool or weapon against the deep state. Um, so he didn't really know what he was doing, uh, doing coming in and he couldn't stay focused, even though a lot of his impulses, I think were directionally great. Um, right. DeSantis has all those same impulses and is way smarter than Trump. And he gets it. Like we were saying earlier, better than any Republican politician, I think in America, politician, maybe at least it, like a politician has a chance of actually running and winning the presidency. Right. Like, so sure. I saw DeSantis give a speech out at um, the Claremont Institute in California. Sorry for going to California. I know, you know, whatever. Uh, but like, I, I did give them my money for a couple of days. Um, and uh, a couple months ago, I gave it, it was, to them for 38 years. Don't feel bad. Yeah, it was there. There you go. Right. So I, I <laughs> can catch up a little bit. Um, but uh, 
it was the single like most radical speech I've seen a Republican give ever, at least, you know, like it, that I've seen, right? Like it's, I mean, it, the guy was, he said, the press is a tool of the regime and they need to start being treated as such, right? Like, it's like, oh, like, yes, like, like I, I want to hear Republicans talking about that. And he was serious, right? Like he was talking, it was a closed room. So it wasn't like a base speech, right? He was talking to like a closed room. Um, so he was being honest, like, and he was just saying, this is what I think, right? And he just got it. He like understood exactly everything we're talking about. He was talking about in the, in those terms. So like, is he capable of dismantling the deep state? No, no, no. It's a generational project. Like you said, it's not going to be one person, right? But someone has to start and you have to come in understanding exactly what that means. And DeSantis spent, you know, the last four years, five, six years, I guess, whatever, like studying what was happening in the Trump administration really closely um, and understanding what was going on. So if anyone is prepared to at least start just going in and kicking ass, I can't think of a better person than DeSantis. There's plenty of things. There's always problems you can find. Like no politician is going to, um, you know, be perfect. But he is one of the most competent executives in America. Way more no competent than Trump ever was. More focused, and also is coming off of the last six years with the benefit of having seen what happened, being able to go in and actually chart a different course. So that's my my shilling for for Ron DeSantis. I'm not paid uh, by his campaign. This is my personal <laughs> fanboying. I promise. Maybe someday, no, no. you know, who knows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, hey. <laughs> I moved to Florida. I'd be a total hypocrite to be like, "No, fuck <laughs> that guy." That's right, yeah. Uh no, I'm I'm extremely appreciative as I've said many times. Like he's he's been a savior to many people, millions of people over the past uh 2 years in particular. So, I'm I'm very appreciative of him. I'm I'm also skeptical and concerned and nervous and these are all my libertarian sure. leanings that, that yeah, always course. will make me feel that way. But I, I tend to agree with you that, um, you know, if there is a Republican hope that could actually get in there and, uh, as you said, probably not purge the deep state, but but um, find ways to use state power to mm -hmm. kind of defang them, to, yes. to, you know, stem the tide of what we're experiencing. And that's what we need desperately. I mean, it, it, just to get back to the <clears throat> the original point that you and I uh, kind of got put together to talk about. Um, I think that the, the capacity and we haven't even mentioned cryptocurrency, which I mm -hmm. just did an entire hour and a half on, mm -hmm. um, which will be going out probably after this episode, but the same mechanisms that they're describing to suppress and freeze accounts when it comes to crowdfunding with uh, give said go and go fund me, they rolled out the same stuff for cryptocurrency and they froze crypto uh addresses and it's like this is such a big problem that i'm not even sure that we can win it without some sort of defensive state power or getting yes. in some sort of revolutionary uh figure in like desantis because they're what what they've now witnessed is how unbelievably powerful and easily utilized these tools are and and they have they have the monopoly on, on violence via the state and the police mm -hmm. and the military. And now they have the monopoly on, you know, financial violence, which is mm -hmm. how I view it, in that they are able to freeze assets of dissidents as they try and peacefully rise up. Yep. That is <laughs> it's so daunting, brother. Like, I don't think people understand how big a deal this is. By the way, that's just the, the technical textbook definition of fascism. Like I'm just I mean, look. I'm not. I mean, I, I don't throw that word around very lightly because it's used so much. It doesn't even mean. It's like the word racism. It doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Like, exactly. it's like the kind of things you hear. Like it's you know whatever. It's been robbed of meaning. But the like just 
technically speaking, the textbook definition of what a fascist political system is, is the marriage of large corporate power and state power and corporate power working as the ideological instrument or tool of the state. That's what they're doing in Canada, right? Like that's just, again, that, you know, not like using the word fascist because it's, it's dumb or whatever, but like you want an actual example of fascism. You're living what's it. happening in Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like what they're trying to do in the United States too. So act accordingly, right? Yeah. Well, and they're, and they're not just doing it uh, in Canada. They're also doing like when you see uh, pr quote unquote private businesses act in unison to nuke Donald Trump, to nuke Alex Jones. Like mm -hmm. these are examples of, in my opinion, coordinated state and, and uh, you know, business power working to get people that they don't like to not be able to speak. That is also right. fascism textbook. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not as egregious as freezing people's financial accounts, uh, broad-based freezing of, you know, hundreds of people. There's over 200 people that have had all of their assets frozen in Canada. Um, and they're also going after relatives. I, I pointed out yesterday, which was also another viral tweet because I was like, I, I remembered, I was like, where have I heard this before? Because they, they were talking about how it wasn't just the protesters, but relatives of the protesters were also seeing that their, their credit cards had been frozen. And I was like, where have I heard this before? Oh mm -hmm. yeah. North Korea. Oh, North yeah. Korea yeah. does oh, this. They go yeah. after the entire family, the, mm -hmm. you know, their, your entire progeny. And, and oftentimes it was three generations worth where they would put you all in the salt mines. It's like, this is fucking, this is wild. Like, yeah. did, I guess I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, did you think that we were this, that we were this far down the path to uh, totalitarian rule? No, and I still, like, I've, I've talked about this with a bunch of my buddies, just, like, offhandedly remarked. It's one of these things where it, it is so insane and things have, have moved so quickly. I mean, in some ways, right, like we were talking about before is this is taking the mask off, so it was already happening. And it's just much more visible now. But it's still, mm -hmm. like, that process, you know, it happened very rapidly and one of the reasons they're being open about it now is that they're just leaning into it and it is getting worse and it is getting more radical. Right. So like that, I mean, one of the benefits that like the regime has in States like uh, Canada and the United States is that it's unbelievable. Like it's literally in the, in the technical <laughs> term, term, unbelievable. Right. Like, so, yeah, yeah. so you have people who might otherwise be pre, like I talked to some, my, you know, my, my mom and dad are, you know, sort of center left Democrats sometimes vote for moderate Republicans or whatever, but like, what you know whatever they vote for joe biden great people lovely people love my parents but like you know it's the kind of thing where you show them that they're very reasonable people generally but it's like it's just it's it's so insane they just don't believe it right it's like right. well that doesn't canada wouldn't do that right like and even me like as someone who like does this for a living and and, and talking to you and i'm like aware of of what's at stake here I still haven't like fully emotionally processed like, oh, oh no, no, no. Trudeau's like actually wants to do fascism, right? Like, yeah. like that's actually what, like, that's actually what he wants to do. Right. I mean, he's just, he's just telling us that he's just openly like the video that I wrote about, like his, uh, his finance minister just standing up and saying, we are going to permanently control or permanently surveil all of your, all of your transactions. And if you do something that doesn't tow the party line, we are going to sh make sure you don't have a bank account, basically like you're unpersoned, right? Like they're just telling you they're going to do it. Right. And it's, it is so blatant and it is so insane in a, in countries that are traditionally used to thinking of themselves as free societies that it, it it's like, I haven't fully processed it yet. Right. And I think like, 
the task for those of us who are trying to save these countries uh, is and is to wake people up and to actually get them past that point, being like, no, 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 look at it. Like, don't look away, right? Because it's more comfortable to look away. Look at what they're doing to your country. Um, uh, because it's, it is, it is a slow process and it's an incredibly uncomfortable realization. So people don't want to look at it. Um, but you have to, because otherwise, you know, we've seen what's at stake, uh, and it's not, yeah, it's not because your life's on the line. I mean, yep. it, or a life that you would want to live. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. And to your point about the, uh, the Canadian finance minister, which is Christia Fr uh, Freeland, she is also, she also sits on the board of the world economic forum under Klaus Schwab. And go. I mean, yep. this is, this is, uh. It's daunting, brother. <laughs> but I, I'm grateful to to have had the time with you. And I'm grateful that there are so many young conservatives that, um, you know, are seeing this problem so, so clearly. It's, it, it gives me a lot of hope that, that there's a real, real chance that we can actually still fight back and prevail against this insanity. Um, so anyways, thank you so much for your time. Go ahead and tell people where they can follow you. Yeah, you can follow me at, at NJ Hawkman on Twitter. It's at N-J-H-O-C-H-M-A-N. Great. He's Nate Hockman. Uh, make sure you guys follow him. Make sure you support him. We got we to gotta support people that, that actually uh, not just see this stuff clearly, but write about it courageously and, and are informing and waking up those that need to hear it most. And I agree with you. Do not look away. This is It's horrifying, but it doesn't matter. You have to stare it in its face if we're going to defeat it. So thank you again. Thanks, Clint. It was fun. Well, that was an incredible episode. I really want to thank Nate Hockman for coming on. Uh, brilliant guy. I, I'm going to be following his writing from now on. I hope you guys do as well. Be supportive of these people, especially the conservatives that see the same issues that us libertarians do. I think that there's a lot of overlap in our analysis. Some of our solutions differ, but I think anyone who is seeing the problems as clear-eyed as he is uh, and you are, is worth listening to and having conversations with. We don't have enough numbers to be purists, folks. You have to be willing to talk to some people, even when you have some areas of disagreement on problem solving and the solutions. But the analysis is square one, and Nate has it on lock as far as I'm concerned. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I have an incredible lineup for this week. Uh, I don't even want to give you all the details. I'm not going to give you names, but let's just say I had on a creator, uh, two creators of different cryptocurrencies that we basically break down the CBDC rollout or potential rollout assured rollout and when it happens and what it means uh, to the crypto space, as well as asset freezes, how you might be able to circumvent that and work through it, around it, uh, all legally, of course. So that's going to be a great one. That'll be out tomorrow. And then I also am setting up a panel discussion with three juggernauts to talk about exactly that, how we work to become financially sovereign, how we can actually take control of our assets, unbank ourselves. Um, cryptocurrency will obviously be an answer, but it's not as simple as that. Uh, contrary to some of the Bitcoin maximalist beliefs, I think that there is a lot that we have to do to prepare for this. And I, I wanted to brainstorm it with three people that I respect tremendously. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be probably one of my best, to be honest. Um, I think it's a, the most important thing we're dealing with today. And no one is covering it in the level that it needs to be, in my opinion. There's a lot of analysis, which is kind of new, and people are trying to wrap their heads around it. And I appreciate that. So am I, for the record. Uh, but there's not a lot of problem solving that is also paired with the concern mongering. And, and 
concern mongering is necessary because people need to be aware of what they're up against, but it's not enough just to scare the shit out of people. Once they're scared, you got to show them a path to try and work through this stuff so that we can all be financially free and we can all, uh, you know, to the best of our ability, still speak out, still have a, a confidence and a faith and a structure that you can operate from that gives you an opportunity to speak with courage to power and good Lord, are we going to need that in the, uh, in the long term, but more importantly, the very, very near term. Anyways, if you enjoy this show, if you like uh, what I do, please don't feel any obligation. But if you want to, you can support my show by going to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a, su a subscriber or a supporting member of the show. I do exclusive AMAs over there where I have people come in on video, ask me any questions they have, and we just kind of hang out for an hour and we talk and I, I try and give tips, advice, answer whatever specific questions I can. And uh, it's been just an amazing start to the community. We have over 150 members already. And it's just, uh, it it puts wind in my sails. Honest, honest to God, it does. Again, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Thank you so much. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feffin' A typo and Luke might bring them nooses We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm a shit Peter Quinones invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way but I am unequal Lions of Liberty now hear me roar Beat running out but I got a bit more Robbie the fire always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky smooth time was the only sound Getting so Hot must be air July Screaming in the mic, I rip for 59 Miles to ratio, that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war, but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe